I'm going to start with a story. The story about love. Nikki was a small, round woman with kind almond eyes and short black hair. Her gaze was permanently fixed on whatever lay on the floor in front of her feet as she shuffled slowly from place to place around the old, expansive group home where she lived. Despite receiving a master's degree from MIT and starting a promising career as an engineer, Nikki suffered a psychotic break late in her 20s that rendered her literally speechless. When I first met Nikki, she had not spoken a word of language for over 20 years. Now, Anne was the opposite of Nikki. Tall and lean with steel blue eyes, her long, wispy hair mirrored the color of the platinum jewelry she wore that betrayed her origin as New England aristocracy. Anne, too, had fallen ill with psychiatric issues later in life, in this case as the result of a car accident in middle age. But while the accident may have taken her stability, it did not steal her voice. Anne would converse constantly with the other residents of the group home where Anne and Nikki lived together, with me and the other staff of the facility, with the empty chair across the table. But most importantly, Anne would talk to Nikki. They were friends and roommates. They would watch TV together, eat together, line up for morning medications together. They were an oddly perfect couple. A woman who hadn't spoken in 20 years, who was a willing, captive audience to a woman who couldn't stop talking. Now, one evening, I had just begun a 12-hour overnight shift, and I was the only staff person in the house. I had finished doling out evening medications and had prepared each of the 12 residents for bedtime. Sitting down in the office, I breathed a long sigh and began the evening paperwork, thankful for the quiet that had finally settled over the house. All of a sudden, I heard someone tromping down the stairs, and I quickly recognized Nikki's particular sound, the muffled whimpers and grunts that she now used to communicate rather than words. She burst through the office door with a wild look in her eyes, pointing and grunting towards the stairs. I quickly followed her to a room on the second floor to find Anne writhing in between their two single beds. I immediately went into the, the practiced seizure protocol, calling 911 from the cordless house phone while cushioning Anne's head with a pillow and blankets I pulled off her bed. As Anne's body twitched below me, I looked up to see Nikki, whose eyes were now full of tears. She leaned down towards her friend and in a scratchy voice said her first words in over two decades. Don't die, Anne. I love you. Now you may 
be happy to hear that Anne did not die that night. And as far as I know, she and Nikki are still roommates on the second floor of that ancient old group home just outside of Boston, where I worked now over 15 years ago. I love you. As far as I know, those may in fact be the last words Nikki has said since. So we have a long and rainbow-colored history here at Bradford UU, and really in the entirety of the Unitarian Universalist faith. Since this church's renaissance 31 years ago, we've had more gay clergy than straight. And in the year 2000, we became a certified welcoming congregation by the Unitarian Universalist Association. But even further back, even further back in our church's history, as well as our faiths, we have been more welcoming and affirming than most, always leading or at the very forefront of gay and lesbian rights, women's rights, and struggling for the equality of transgender and gender-fabulous folks everywhere. As far back as the turn of the 19th century, homosexuality was, while not exactly celebrated, certainly condoned by several of the transcendentalist communities that had popped up around New England, including George Ripley's Brook Farm, ironically less than a quarter mile from that group home where I worked in Roxbury, Massachusetts, where Nikki uh, and Anne lived, and Bronson Alcott's Fruitlands in western Massachusetts, both of which counted among their respective tenants openly homosexual individuals and couples and featured varying family living arrangements. Several other transcendentalist Unitarian authors, such as Walt Whitman, had widely known same-sex relationships. And Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville wrote long love letters to one another. Perhaps the single greatest work of American fiction, Melville's magnum opus, Moby Dick, is dedicated to Hawthorne, though sadly it appears that Melville's affections would ultimately not be returned. Nearly as long ago, a strong group of independent women would embrace growing leadership roles and become the first group of female clergy in the country, the prophetic sisterhood, which my wife Kimberly spoke about on Mother's Day here, who included the Unitarian minister in Kenosha from 1901 to 1910, the Reverend Florence Buck. Reverend Buck was part of a domestic partnership with fellow Unitarian minister, Reverend Marion Murdoch, who at the time was minister to the Unitarians in Geneva, Illinois. They would also be co-ministers together in Ohio, and Reverend Buck would go on to be the first female director of religious education at the American Unitarian Association, would be the first woman awarded a doctorate from an American theological school. They would remain close and committed partners until the end of Florence's life. Currently, our LGBTQ plus community is relatively well represented here, I would say. I think that's something to celebrate today for the beauty of the diversity we celebrate. Celebrate diversity. One, two, three. Celebrate diversity! Thank you. Can we, yeah, can we do that a lot? <clears throat> One more time. 
Celebrate diversity! But also, this is important because of the diversity we celebrate, but also as a reminder of how far we've come and how far we have yet to go in the struggle for equal treatment of our pride family. So by a show of hands, don't be embarrassed, who here was alive in 1983? Many of us, not that, that long ago, right? Okay. Until 1983, homosexuality and homosexual acts were crimes in the state of Wisconsin. Until 1983. So-called anti-sodomy laws remained on the books of several U.S. states until the Supreme Court ruled such laws unconstitutional in the landmark case Lawrence versus Texas in 2003. It was this century before any sodomy laws were ruled unconstitutional. When I began my professional ministry now, nearly a decade ago, gay marriage was not recognized by Illinois, where I served, or Wisconsin, where I lived, or by the federal government. Now, however, we have millions of legally married same-gender couples all across the country. And states like Wisconsin have added sexual orientation, even perceived sexual orientation, to anti-discrimination and hate crime protection laws. But 22 other states and the federal government have no such protections. Likewise, adoption rights for same-gendered married couples varies from state to state. And these advances have obviously not gone far enough. And even these, even these are coming under attack, as, as we heard from John's piece. In the past few months, the Trump administration has reversed the Obama-era guidelines allowing transgender students to use the bathrooms consistent with their gender identity, thrown out the Obama order protecting federal workers from being fired for their sexual orientation, and threatened to ban our trans military personnel this without the support of the leadership of the armed forces themselves. And worse, the balance of the Supreme Court might be radically shifted with this pending appointment, threatening decisions upholding rights not only for the LGBTQ community, but for women, for healthcare, for civil rights themselves. And though we lag far behind most of the rest of the developed countries in the world, in our attitudes toward and protections for LGBTQ folks, the sad truth is that much of the world still harbors homophobic ideals and societal values and in governmental statutes alike. So what, what indeed do we do? In a recent interview in The Economist, Fabrice Poudar, who is a human rights officer at the United Nations, offers a couple of his thoughts. He says, quote, we need global social change. And it is hard because we don't really know the recipe. In America, no one can pinpoint what triggered the radical shift in public attitudes. Was it the AIDS epidemic? Was it will and grace? The marriage equality movement? People coming out in the workplace? It was probably a combination of all of these things. 
So we need to design innovative and comprehensive strategies, empowering and funding local LGBT groups, talking to faith-based leaders, pushing legal changes through the court system, encouraging a more positive representation of gay, lesbian, and transgender people in the media, reminding companies of their responsibilities to their LGBT employees, carrying out public campaigns to challenge stereotypes and building coalitions with other human rights causes." End quote. Well, that's all well and good, of course, as to what we need to do, but I do want to come back a little bit to why it is we do what we do. Our faith is grounded in the understanding that love is the supreme power of the universe. Love, as we know, manifests in many different ways and forms. Partnership, emotional intimacy, and mutual reliance is but one of many ways love shows itself to us. And as a people of faith whose faith is grounded in love, it is our responsibility to share what we know about love, but also, but also to listen to what others have learned as well. In our belief system, which embraces so many different theologies within the singular ethic of love, we know that anything or anyone who can teach us something about love is worthy of our attention, worthy of our care, worthy of our company, and of our respect. Now, Nikki and Anne were almost certainly not lovers, nor probably were Melville and Hawthorne, for that matter, but their relationships teach us something about loving. And one thing they teach us is simply that love is love. Though it may not have lasted, as in the, in the case of Melville and Hawthorne, or it may be threatened by disease or death, there is never anything false, never anything false about love. If a relationship is loving, whether it be sexual or not, if it is mutual and non-exploitative and no partner holds direct power over the other, then who are we? Who is anyone to question its validity, to question the legitimacy of that love? Conversely, if another person's relationship or expression of love makes us uncomfortable, Rather than reject that person or expression, it is up to us to think about what we ourselves might be able to learn from them. Just as openly gay couples made some in this church uncomfortable 30 years ago, yet have consistently taught us about being loving families regardless of gender, so too have some of our members recently expressed concerns or discomfort about our trans folks and our polyamorous group, well, missing the point that we all have something to teach and all have something to learn about intimacy, about relationship, about identity, about love. And ultimately what we have come to learn is that we are all better off. We all benefit when people are open about their love and affirmed by the rest of us. 
when we are all free to find a partner or partners that will walk with us along life's glorious yet arduous journey, who will challenge our assumptions and support our struggles, who will be there when we need someone the most. Now, I think every so often about my time at the group homes, think about what I learned about work and mental illness and humanity. I think about the residents, each with unique problems, but also with unique gifts to share with each other and those of us lucky enough to serve them. And I think about how the night of Anne's seizure, I learned about friendship and love and how the voiceless Nikki may, in fact, have had the last word. I love you. Thank you, Nikki. I couldn't have said it better myself. Happy Pride, everyone. Blessed be, and amen.